Marina Johansson went missing the night between July 27th and July 28th in 2010. And there were a lot of speculations on what might have happened to her. Her boyfriend is suspected of murdering her, but there is no body. And when he is put on trial in August of 2010, he is found not guilty. But in April of 2012, Marina's body is found and he is again tried for her murder and this time he gets convicted. It's almost never heard of that a person who is found not guilty in a trial of a crime then later gets convicted for the same crime but this is one of those rare cases. Hi and welcome to True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Pernilla. I am so glad that you tuned in for this episode. I hope you are going to find it as interesting as I did. But before we start, I have a little bit of housekeeping to do. In episode 6, uh, about the fire in Gothenburg, I made a mistake when I talked about the reward. I can promise you that I wasn't drunk, but my mind must have been somewhere else. Because I said that 3 million Swedish kroner equals 118 dollars. That is of course wrong. 3 million Swedish kroner equals about 365,000 US dollars. I'm so sorry for that mistake. You guys must have thought that the Swedish government was the cheapest ever for putting out an award for $118. Well thank you so much to Betty and also to my sister for pointing this out to me. Now on to the case. I'm going to start this episode out by telling you a little bit about Marina and who she was. And then I'm going to go into the days around her disappearance. I also want to point out that I'm not going to mention the last name of the man who later gets convicted of killing her. The Swedish media has not used his name, so I don't want to do that either. So, who was Marina? Marina Johansson was born on June 16, 1979, to parents Laila and Lars Rune Johansson. She had two younger sisters, who I'm not going to mention by name due to their wishes to stay out of the public eye. Marina lived in a house in a secluded area. She worked with environmental issues as some kind of inspector. She was raised in a very religious home. Her sisters tell the police that they were not allowed to play cards or wear nail polish or any other sinful thing when they were kids. The three sisters played only with each other and they never had friends over. Marina is described by a work-related acquaintance as a very immature person and she had a hard time saying no to anyone or anything. She was also very caring and went out of her way to do nice things for others. 
She had previously been in a relationship with a man called Per. They started dating when she was about 17 or 18 years old, and they moved in together in a house that Marina's parents bought for her. They split up in 2005 when Marina was 25 years old. After that, she met Fredrik in 2007, and he moved into her house. Fredrik was addicted to drugs, and Marina didn't like this at all. She was against drugs and alcohol, and she never drank herself. The reason for this is believed to be that her father abused alcohol during her upbringing. She broke off the relationship with Fredrik in the fall of 2009, but he had nowhere to go, so she let him continue to live in her house in the basement. I don't really like mentioning things like this, but Marina was into BDSM sex, and she was active on different websites looking for submissive men to date or to chat with. She herself was the dominant one in this scene. The reason I choose to include this information in the story is because it plays quite a big role in the investigation. But remember, however Marina chose to live her life, she did not deserve what was done to her. She was very active online and had been seeing a few men in real life for dates. Sometimes those dates included sex and sometimes not. If her ex-boyfriend Fredrik was aware of this or not is not really clear. But Marina talked a lot online with a man who was active in the domination submissive scene. He saw himself as a mentor for Marina. I didn't know so much about this type of thing before, but you can obviously have two different kinds of setups here. You can either be dominating someone in the bedroom, but the rest of the time you are like any other couple, or you can have a 24-7 type of domination thing, where the submissive part does everything just to please the dominator. This mentor person that Marina talked to online said that she was asking a lot about this 24-7 thing, how it worked, and that he had told her that it comes with a great deal of responsibility, because the submissive person totally puts his life in your hands and leaves all the decision-making about his life over to the dominator. The submissive also do all the housework, chores and whatever the dominator wants him to do. Even though Marina and Fredrik were broken off, it may have been the case that Marina was dominating him in their day-to-day -day life. Fredrik didn't have a job. He hadn't been working for a long time. He was addicted to drugs and the mailman confirms that there were padded envelopes in the mail for him almost every day and most of the time he was waiting next to the mailbox for the mail to arrive. And how did he finance this? We don't really know, but the thought is that Marina paid for a lot of this. He did do a lot of work around the house and the garden, and it's clear that Marina had the upper hand here. 
she had the money and he had the addiction. If you add him finding out that she was seeing other men, maybe that was the reason why he snapped. In the beginning when Marina met Fredrik in 2007, she was happy that he had three children. She thought it would be great to spend time with them. She was determined, though, to never become a mother herself. But when she met Fredrik's children, she found them rude, obnoxious and weird. She told her sister that Kevin, the five-year-old, expressed that he wanted to touch Marina's breasts and that he added that his mother let him do that to her. This got Marina thinking about what the situation for the kids at the mother's house was really like. In 2008, the mother of the children accuses Marina and Fredrik for physically abusing the children. This goes to trial, but both Marina and Fredrik are freed by the court. Fredrik does have a prior conviction for assault, but not against his children. He also has prior convictions for drugs and traffic violations. Fredrik is born on July 27, 1973, and is described as a tall, thin, handsome guy with long, dark hair. He often had his hair up in some kind of ponytail. He is described as strange by a lot of people and his prior girlfriends describe how they felt that he used them financially. He never really had a steady job, even though he is 37 years old in 2010. He also has this drug problem. When Marina was in a relationship with Fredrik, her personality changed a bit. The sisters felt that he tried to isolate her from the rest of the family. But when Marina broke off the relationship with Fredrik, she became her old self again. The youngest sister says that Marina was really happy and outgoing that last summer. But when the sisters talk about Fredrik, they say that they avoided him. They never called Marina's house phone because sometimes Fredrik would pick up and they didn't want to talk to him. The sisters also describe how they felt that he creeped them out. There was just something about him that wasn't right. You're now going to hear a short part of Marina's notes from the summer before she went missing. At this time, they were taking care of Fredrik's children for three weeks. I've changed the children's names to protect them. July 21st. Fredrik is screaming to Kevin that he cannot walk in the sand at the beach without telling him first in a calm voice. Fredrik doesn't even give him a chance to act correct. He yells at him right away. Not a thing I want in the father of my children. July 22nd. Fredrik has no understanding that I think this is hard. It's only day two. According to him, I'm only whining and being unfair to the point of being ridiculous. And then he woke me up in the middle of the night to have sex. 
July 26th. Fredrik chose to stay outside and have his dinner, even though his mother insisted on eating inside. This resulted in that I had to be the one to help the children and make sure that they ate their food. While he was sitting outside with his friend, he doesn't know what responsibility or common sense is. July 31st It's my grandmother's birthday and I get to spend some time alone with her in the city while Fredrik is tending to the children alone. He is whining about how hard it was to take care of them, especially since Sarah peed herself in the restaurant. It's almost like I should feel sorry for him or feel bad because I wasn't there to help. August 7th. Fredrik gets uncontrollably angry at Sarah and gives her a slap over the face, and then he puts her over his lap to spank her. Fredrik doesn't understand how this behavior affects me and the children. I think it's scary that he completely loses control like this. Would he be able to hit me too? And a little side note here. In Sweden, it's against the law to hit or spank your kids. Sweden was the first country in the world that made it illegal to hurt or spank a child when disciplining them. This law was passed in 1979, and since then, 37 countries around the world has followed. Well, back to Marina's notes. August 8th. Fredrik begins to instruct Kevin on how to dive, but he gives up when he doesn't get it. He instead leaves me there to continue while he takes off to get dressed. We also found out that Kevin is hiding his underwear, because they are missing when we do the laundry. We later find out that Kevin does this at home as well. He goes to the bathroom in his underwear consciously, and then he hides the dirty underwear. August 9th. Fredrik is aware of the fact that this is hard on me, and that I have a hard time coping. Despite of this, he falls asleep on the couch with Sarah, and leaves the two older children to watch whatever they want. I have to be the one to put the children to bed and to wake him up. August 10th. Fredrik is still feeling bad about the slap that he gave Sarah the other day. He says that he is not allowed to spend time with the children if he is not with me, and he is afraid to lose both me and the children. He thinks it would be better if I say that the children are no longer welcome here, and then he has to find another way to spend time with them. Later that night, he takes all the time in the world to make me relax and enjoy myself, something I highly appreciate. Now that you know a little bit about Marina and her relationship with Fredrik, it's time to get into what happened in the end of July 2010. I'm going to begin with a police report that was filed on Tuesday, August 3rd, 2010. This is what it said. Officers receive a call from a woman who is worried about her daughter who has been missing for almost a week. Last Wednesday, July 28th, Marina left her house around noon 
Her ex-boyfriend is still living in the house, and she didn't tell him where she was going. She sent a text later that day to her sister, and the text said that she was in Linköping or Lidköping. The sister didn't remember which. Since then, no one have heard from her. Her car is not by the house. The house has been searched, and also the shed in the garden, with no result. She does not answer her phone, and her relatives have no idea where she might be. The sister points out that the text is weird. First of all, Marina never texts when she is driving. She always calls. And second of all, the text from Marina arrived shortly after noon on Wednesday, July 29th. And according to her ex-boyfriend, she left at noon. And in the text she says that I'm almost there. And the drive to Linköping or Lidköping is about two and a half hours. So this is what they know right now. That she left on Wednesday, July 28th, around lunchtime. And that she sent a text to her sister saying that she was almost in Linköping or Lidköping. As you can hear, the two towns sound really similar. Lidköping and Linköping. And people often mix them up if you don't have a relation to either one of them. But the only reason we know that Marina left her house is because her ex-boyfriend said so. And sure, the text. But we don't actually have any proof of that Marina was really the one writing it. As I told you, Marina broke off her relationship with the boyfriend Fredrik in the fall of 2009, about 10 months before she goes missing. She gave him six months to find some place to live, and in the meantime, he stayed in the basement of her house. According to Marina's sister, she was really tired of having him stay there, but she was too nice of a person to just throw him out on the street. On the day of July 27th, Marina wanted to do something nice for Fredrik because it was his birthday. So she's going to take him out on the boat and go water skiing and wakeboarding. They arrive at Marina's parents' house at about 2.30pm to take the boat out. Marina's mother heard them argue about something that Marina had forgot to bring. They then go out on the boat, and about an hour later, Marina storms into her mother's house and leaves the key to the boat on the counter. She was angry and upset and went straight out to the car where Fredrik was sitting in the passenger seat. Later, Marina's mother found out from Marina's sister, who talked to Marina at about 6 p.m. that night, that the tow bar for the wakeboard broke, and that Fredrik had lost his Ray-Ban sunglasses in the water. Marina was really upset when she spoke to her sister that night. She was actually crying something she didn't do very often. And she told her sister that Fredrik had called her all sorts of awful things and that he had been really mean to her. On the night of July 27th, Marina was on her computer 
talking to a friend of hers, Joakim. This is what was said. At 11.35pm, Marina tells him that she had a shitty day and that she had been fighting with her ex-boyfriend and now roommate. At 11.52pm, she asks Joakim if he wants to come over on a fika the next day. You remember the word fika from the last episode, I hope? If not, fika is like having coffee and a chit-chat. Swedish people fika all the time. Well, Marina invites Joakim to fika the next day. Sometime between 4 and 6 p.m. they agree on. Before that, she is going to buy some stuff for the boat and maybe go snorkeling. And after that, she is going to meet her sister, who gets off work at 6 p.m. They finish the conversation at 18 minutes past midnight. The next day, on Wednesday, July 28th, someone withdraws 10,000 kroner, that is about 1,200 US dollars, from Marina's account, using her ATM card. First, that someone enters the wrong PIN number, and then the withdrawal takes place. Marina's sister tried to reach her via text several times between 2 and 4 p.m., and she gets a reply from Marina that says, Cannot talk right now. I'm in lean shopping or lead shopping. Buying a new tow bar tomorrow, and I'll see you tomorrow. And then a few minutes after that, Marina sends another text to her sister that only says, Love you, Lil Skrut. That was a sweet nickname that she used for her little sister. Marina and her sister had plans to go wakeboarding that evening after Marina's sister got off work. And it wasn't like Marina just to take off and break off plans without even calling. The sister got upset by the way Marina handled this by just sending a text. So she deleted the text right after she got it. And that's why nobody knows if it said lean shopping or lead shopping. On Thursday, July 29th, Marina has plans with her sister again. They were really close. But nobody hears anything from Marina on that day either. Marina usually went over to her parents' house for dinner on Saturdays. But this Saturday, they didn't hear anything from her. And on that same Saturday, July 31st, it's Marina's grandmother's birthday. This day was very important to Marina, and she never missed it. This raises their suspicions even more that something bad has happened to Marina. Marina's mother and sister tries to call and text her several times, but the phone seems to be turned off. Marina's youngest sister describes the days after Marina's disappearance like this. They were all worried but thought that Marina might have met somebody online, and that that was the reason for her not answering the phone. So they were worried, but not too worried, I guess, at first. But when her mother called the police to talk to them about what to do, she was told that they could not make a missing 
person's report until they had checked out that she wasn't in her home. So they decide to go out to Marina's house. This is on Monday, August 2nd. And when the mother told the youngest sister that she was going to Marina's house to look for her, the sister decides to go with her. The reason for this, she says to the police, is that if he did do something to Marina, maybe he would attack her mother if she saw something at the house. So she goes with her mother. She also brings a baseball bat for protection. When they got there, she stayed in the car while the mother went up to the front door to knock. She was sitting in her car holding her phone with the police's number dialed and she just had to press the call button to make the call to the police. But Fredrik opened the door and he acted very calm. He showed them around the house and said that he didn't know where Marina were. He said that she left around noon on the 28th and that she never told him where she was going. He also points out that she has been meeting a lot of guys from different websites lately. And he also says that he wasn't home on the night between July 28th and July 29th. That is the night after Marina went missing. Fredrik helps them search through the house and the shed, but they don't find anything. One interesting thing to note here is that Marina started to lock the doors to her rooms in the house when she broke off her relationship with Fredrik. The reason for this was that she didn't want him to snoop around in her things. But when the mother and sister are there looking for Marina, he just gets a kitchen knife and with ease opens the locked doors. Marina's mother also says that she was surprised to see Marina's bedroom so tidy because she was a messy person. But now the bed was made and it didn't look like it usually did in there. And believe me, the house was messy. I've seen all the pictures that the police took from the different rooms and there are things everywhere. Boxes, bags, clothes, you name it. It's just really messy. The neighbors later tell the police that there were loud music coming from Marina's house on the night she is thought to have gone missing. The neighbors were not used to her playing music like this. When they search the house, they also find that Marina's passport, wallet and phone are missing. When the police makes the first visit to the house on August 3rd, they go through the house and look around, but they cannot find any sign of a struggle or anything. So they leave. But one of the policemen noticed a calendar lying next to Marina's computer. He looked in it to see if she had written down any plans that could explain her disappearance. He didn't take the calendar with him, because they were only there checking out the house of a girl who had been missing for a few days. And as all of you probably know by now, most people who go missing turn up unharmed within a few days. Well, this calendar that he looked in, that's never found again after that. Marina's car 
is found on Thursday, August 5th, on the parking lot of a train station nearby. It's parked in a way so that it almost takes up two parking spaces. And according to her family, Marina would never park a car like that. On Friday, August 6th, Fredrik is arrested for the murder of Marina. Even though the police have not found a body yet, they believe that Marina has been murdered. They feel that several things point in his direction, but they don't have any solid evidence. Two days after they arrest him, they search the house and use dogs that are supposed to be able to smell if there has been a dead body in the house. But the dogs don't react to anything, and the police technicians take photos and search the whole house. But did they really? This search of the house is later going to turn out to be the worst crime scene investigations ever done and they get so much criticism for it in the media. But one thing that they did find in the house was a letter that Marina wrote to Fredrik when she broke up with him. I'm not going to read that to you. I don't really know how to say this. I only know that I have to say it. And because I express myself better when I'm writing, you now have, the, have this letter in your hand. It doesn't feel right towards myself or towards you to continue to get us to work anymore. There are important parts of my personality that you don't like, and there are parts of your personality that I both dislike and are scared of. I don't feel as good with you as I think I should in a relationship. I think we both deserve to feel better than we are right now. I know you don't agree with me completely, but I have to listen to myself right now. I think we have had both ups and downs during our relationship, but it has been both positive and negative, as I said. I think the strength in our relationship has been that we always had fun around each other. We have made each other try new things, and we like the same things. I therefore hope that we can still stay in touch and do things together because that's when we can have fun and be great together. I really hope you can find someone to be happy with, and that you can regain a relationship with your children and focus on building a stronger relationship to them. I know you are a survivor, and that you've probably just been waiting for this to happen, and you can handle the feelings that you are feeling now. I'm not sure I can handle my feelings so well. I like you very much, but this is just not working. I don't want to describe it to you in detail. To begin with, there has to be a will to make it work, and you have to have faith. I've lost both when it comes to our relationship. It's not your fault, and I'm not blaming you. It was a big step for me to start with, to commit to us. This step was too big for me. I'm not mature enough to be in a relationship with you, and I cannot do it anymore. I feel that a breakup is unavoidable, and since none of us are getting any younger, it would be stupid to keep this going until we are not able to be friends anymore.
I really opened up to you, and you have seen more of me than other persons have. You have seen the way I think and how I am, and I hope we can find a way to remain friends. I have a strong belief that you can continue with your positive development that I've seen under our years together, and I really hope you will keep it up. I'd be glad to support you if you will let me. I would be happy if you would still support me, and maybe even work with me on the picture-selling thing. I don't want to make you angry. I hope you are not mad right now. I don't want to make you sad, but I hope you understand me, and that you will support me, because I am going to need your support. I want both of us to feel good, and it's now time to do something about it. I feel that I no longer have the will to fight to make this work. I will always cherish our relationship, something that made me fight, forgive, become stronger, and accomplish things I never thought I could do. Besides all that, we had so much fun, as I said before, and for that, I thank you. I hope you can remember us as something positive in your life and that you still want to keep in touch. No matter what, I feel this is it. Even if there is still love, there is no faith left. And it won't hurt less if I keep putting this off into the future. You are a fine person, and you deserve to be happy, just as I want to be. With love, Marina Even though the police work hard to find evidence against Fredrik, they are also looking into the men that Marina had contact with online. At this time, almost everyone is considered a suspect. The police interview several men, some of whom Marina had met in person, and some that she was only online friends with. But they cannot find anything to link any of the men to Marina's disappearance. This means that Fredrik remains the main suspect. But unfortunately, the police cannot find enough to hold him. So on August 13th, Fredrik is released due to lack of evidence. The police search for her in the woods around her house, but they come up with nothing. This is one of the largest searches conducted by police at this time in Sweden. The months pass by and they don't find anything. But shortly after the new year, there is a break in the case. Now it's going to get a little strange, so I first want to give you a little background on this. Before Marina met Fredrik, she lived with a man called Per for almost 10 years. They bought the house together with financial help from Marina's parents. And they lived there up until they split up in 2005. And two years later, Marina met Fredrik and he moved in in 2007. But this first boyfriend of Marina's, Per, 
He was very close to the family, and he kept in contact with both Marina's parents, her sisters, and Marina herself. Marina's mother says that he was almost like an extra son to them. Well, what happens now is the strange thing. Because in the middle of December 2010, Pad and his wife, Lotta, moves into Marina's house. Remember, this used to be his house too, but now it's owned only by Marina. Pat and his wife needed a place to stay, and Marina's mother was only glad that the house wouldn't be empty over the winter. When they move in in December, it's been almost five months since Marina went missing, and nobody really believes that she is coming back. Before the couple moves in, Marina's mother goes to the house to vacuum and just make it nice for the new house guests. She puts in clean sheets in Marina's bed, and when she does this, she tries to remove a large blanket that is spread out between the thick spring mattresses and the thinner bedding mattresses, but it's stuck somehow and she decides to leave it. Pad and Lotta moves in right before Christmas, and they sleep in Marina's bed. It's like a king-size bed, but it's made out of two single beds put together. After staying in the house for about two weeks, it's time to change the sheets in the bed. And when Lotta does this on January 3rd, 2011, she also sees the large blanket underneath, and she decides to remove it. And when she does this, in the upper part of the bed, close to where the pillows just were, there is a huge red-brownish stain. They immediately call the police. To me, this is the weirdest part of this whole story. I don't understand how they could just move into her bedroom and sleep in her bed when nobody knows where she is. And imagine how they must have felt when they found the blood stain in the bed, knowing that they had slept right on the murder scene for two weeks. When the police talked to Pad, he explained that at first he didn't really like the idea of living in Marina's house when she was still missing. But when he got there, he felt like time had stood still there since he moved out five years before and he found himself enjoying being in the house again. The police ask him about weapons, and he tells them that he still has his weapons safe in Marina's basement. There are only two keys to the safe. One is on his keychain, and the other one is in his parents' house. A little side note here. The Sweden gun laws are very restrictive. The law says that you are not allowed to own a gun as a civilian. There are, of course, exceptions, like if you're a hunter, or if you compete in target shooting, or if you're a collector. To be able to own a gun, you have to get a license from the police, and that usually takes several months. The law also say that you're never allowed to carry a gun or a weapon out in public. 
If you need to transport a weapon, it should not be loaded, and if possible, it should be taken apart. And all weapons are to be kept locked in a special weapons safe at all times. Well, back to the case. Paddy tells the police about his weapon safe that is in Marina's house, but she doesn't have a key to it. And he also tells them that Marina owned an old rifle that used to belong to her grandfather. He fought in the Second World War, and this rifle was from back then. This rifle she kept hidden in a hidden compartment underneath the stairs in the basement. When Per tells the police about this, he says that Marina's grandfather gave it to her before he passed away. But it's later found out that the rifle had been reported stolen or at least missing when they cleaned out his estate. This rifle is never found again. The police analyze the blood stain, and it is Marina's blood. They can also say that the amount of blood would have killed her, or at least made her unable to leave on her own. When the blood had been found, the police start to look into the mattresses that were left in Marina's bed. The bottom part is a thick spring mattress that has always been there, but on top of it, it's a thinner mattress. In Sweden we call them bedding mattresses, but I don't know if that's the correct term, but I think you understand what I mean, a thinner mattress that you put on top of a thicker one. In this case, the two thin bedding mattresses were a different brand than the rest. And when the police look into it, they find out that it's the same brand as the ones in Fredrik's bed from his old house. So it's easy to think that Marina's bedding mattresses had been removed and replaced with Fredrik's old ones. About a month before Marina went missing, she went and bought a wheelbarrow that Fredrik asked her to buy. Her mother was with her when she bought it, and she pointed out to Marina that she already had one. But Fredrik said he wanted a bigger one, that the old one wasn't big enough. Marina never said what Fredrik needed it for. It's also important to note here that Marina's house is kind of on an uneven land, and besides all the stairs leading up to her house, There are also floats, because the previous owner was in a wheelchair. This could be how Fredrik got Marina's body out of the house. Now when the bloodstain is found, the police do a new investigation of the house. Now they also find a bullet hole in the wall besides Marina's bed. Can you believe how the crime scene investigators can miss a blood stain that covers half a mattress and also a bullet hole in the wall? Amazing. Well, anyway, they find traces of lead in the bullet hole and also a little fragment of bone. They cannot establish if the bone is from Marina or not. But now that they have been able to collect more evidence, 
they arrest Fredrik again on April 1st. And no, Fredrik, this is not an April Fool's thing. You are under arrest for real. On August 12th, 2011, Fredrik is charged with the murder of Marina, and the trial starts 10 days later, on August 22nd. And on September 16th, 2011, the court finds him not guilty. The prosecutor appeals this ruling, and the case is tried again in a higher court. But on December 15th, 2011, he is found not guilty, even there. So, this is where this case could have ended, with the family never finding out what happened to Marina, and with them not knowing where she is. But that is not what happened, and the reason for this is a man called Peder Schillerström, who on January 12, 2012, started an organization called Missing People Sweden. Let me tell you a little about this organization. They are active on Facebook, and they are able to reach many people in a short time for searches. They are a non-profit organization, but they work close to the police. Before they publish a missing persons case on their Facebook page, they have checked everything out with the police. There has to be a missing persons report filed with the police, and so on. They also get advice from the police on what information that can be published and what not. As a civilian, you can connect with missing people, and when they need to do a search in your area, you get a text. I've attended one search so far. I also want to add that the reason that it's so important that the case of a missing person is verified by the police is because sometimes people are just trying to find someone. For example, a woman who left her boyfriend because he was abusing her, and now she stays hidden for her own safety. How easy wouldn't it be for him to post something about, oh, my girlfriend so-and-so is missing, help me find her. And the consequences of him finding her can be fatal. So before you share something on social media about a missing person, make sure to check out if it's a real case or not. I'm sorry for the social media lecture, but we have to help protect the women that are hiding from abusive men. Well, the first case Missing People Sweden takes on is Marina's case. They receive information from the police on the areas that has already been searched by the police, and then they get to work. They start on a cold spring day, it's raining, and even though it's been almost two years since Marina went missing, about 120 people turn up to help in the search. And they do find her. They find her rolled up in a heavy-duty waterproof cloth that was used on Marina's deck to cover her deck furniture in the winter. 
The packaging of her body had been so well done, so no smell was leaking out, and it had even been left alone by animals. It takes four days to verify that it actually is Marina's body that had been found. She had to be identified by dental records. She had been killed by a single gunshot wound to the head. So what happens now? We have the ex-boyfriend Fredrik, who was found not guilty. But now this points even more to him being the one who did it. Let me tell you a little bit about Fredrik's twists and turns in this case. At first, he tries to make it seem like Marina left on her own and went to Linköping or Lidköping. You know, he parked her car by the train station, he sent the text to the sister and so on. But then he changes his story after a bit, when they found the blood under her bed. And he then says that she was going to have someone over, and that he had to be out of the house on the night between July 28th and July 29th. Remember... The police think that Marina died on the night between July 27th and July 28th. But now Fredrik is claiming that she was going to have someone over the day after. In the days after her murder, he tries to stage a scene that would somehow explain why she went missing. He first sent this text from Marina's phone to her younger sister on July 28th, saying that she was almost in Linköping or Lidköping, Uh, But the phone actually pinged off a tower close to her house when that text was sent. And the day after, there was another text sent from Marina's phone, this time to Fredrik's phone. But no one knows what this text says. Fredrik keeps saying to the police that he never got the text from Marina on that day, that he would have remembered if he did. But they cannot find it on his phone and Marina's phone is never recovered. But after Marina's body is found, the prosecutor and the police try to make a case against him again. In Sweden, we have something called a review by the highest court. This is not something that is done every day, and almost all cases that are granted a review by the highest court are cases where someone might have been wrongfully convicted. But this also applies to cases where someone has been found not guilty and the prosecutor asks for the review. And in this case, on November 1st, 2013, the highest court grants a new trial due to the new evidence. I think this is called double jeopardy in the US, but I'm not sure if it's allowed or not. Please let me know. You can contact me via email or social media. Well, back to Fredrik's stories. He denies ever getting the text from Marina that was sent on July 29th, when she was supposedly already dead. But a few weeks after the highest court made the decision to try the case again, an IT technician working for the police comes up with a very important thing. 
he has, with the help of new technology, been able to recover the text that was sent from Marina's phone to Fredrik's phone. It had been deleted off of Fredrik's phone, so he is obviously lying when he is denying ever receiving it. The text says, I'm gonna stay here until tomorrow. So think about it. First, Fredrik says that Marina left for lean shopping or lead shopping, and when he tries to paint this picture, this text fits right in and would have bought him another day. But when he later changes his story and says that Marina said that she was having someone over and that he couldn't be home uh, the night between July 28th and 29th, this text doesn't fit the story anymore. So he deletes it and denies that it ever existed. And about Fredrik's whereabouts that night that he claims he wasn't allowed to stay at the house? Well, he says that he spent the night in a cemetery where his grandfather is buried. That is the reason that no one can verify where he was. And there is also another thing that is brought up in the last trial. And this is a witness that saw Fredrik on the night between July 27th and July 28th, the night the police are convinced that she died. This witness is a man who lives only about 200 yards from Marina's house. And he sees what he believes is Marina's car on a rest area or a service area that night. His story goes like this. He is addicted to drugs and he was out with some friends that night. They needed to fill up their car, so they went by the gas station, but it was closed. They then went to the close-by rest area to try to find some car to steal gas from. When his friends got out to check if they could get into any of the other cars, a grey car drove up. He thought it looked like his neighbor Marina's car. A guy gets out of the car wearing only a t-shirt and red shorts or red underwear. The man is not wearing any shoes or socks. The witness noticed on his body language that he is upset. He is waving his arms and acting frantic. He opens up the trunk and starts moving something from the left side of the trunk. He then walks over to some bushes and bends down. It looks like he's hiding something in the bushes. He goes back and forth with stuff a few times. They drove off shortly after and he told his friends about this and they talked about going back to see what, he, what the man was hiding but they decided not to, and then he forgot about it. This all happened about 30 minutes after midnight on the night Marina was believed to have been killed. The man he saw that night fits the description of Marina's ex-boyfriend, Fredrik. With these new evidences in place, they go to trial again. And in April of 2014, 
he is convicted for the murder of Marina Johansson and sentenced to 16 years in prison. This case was really interesting to cover. I found out so much more about what really happened by reading all the transcripts from the police and the court than I ever did from reading news articles on the case. Marina seems to have been a wonderful woman who was struggling to find out who she really was and who was right for her. And unfortunately, she was way too nice. And that, in the end, got her killed. She should have thrown him out a long time ago. And now, over to this week's little fun fact from Sweden. I guess most of you are familiar with the word smorgasbord. But did you know that it's actually a Swedish word? And in Swedish, it's pronounced smörgåsbord. If you translate smörgåsbord, you get sandwich table. Smörgås in Swedish is sandwich, and bord means table. So, the next time you find yourself at a smörgåsbord, you can be a smartass and tell people that it actually is a sandwich table. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for all the kind words and support that I'm getting on social media. That means the world to me. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for True Crime Sweden. And I also have a discussion group on Facebook that I would love for you to join. In the end of the show, I'm going to play a promo from another true crime podcast that I think you should check out. It's the girls from Wine and Crime who will tell you why you cannot miss their podcast. So stay tuned. But first, I want to thank some people. Thank you so much to Ilamabug, Carrie B, Betty Jackson and Michelle Farrell for supporting me on Patreon. I really do appreciate it. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truecrimesweden. Or you can support the show for free by giving me a five-star review on iTunes. That is what the following wonderful people did. Thank you to Tinker Panda from Denmark, Fubist from the UK, Blue York, Spads, Claire LJ86, and Two and a Half Sheep from Australia. I love that handle, by the way, Two and a Half Sheep. That's cool. Also, thank you to RNIDD, I don't know how to say that, Arnid, and Rhiannon Delore, and Sanchia W. Melanie, Link, and Tony one-on-one from the U.S. Also thank you to YHHTY from New Zealand. And listen to this. Thank you to Jessica1022 from Taiwan. How cool is that? 
Thank you so much for your 5-star reviews. I cannot really explain how happy it makes me feel to read all your kind words. Thank you so, so much. Well, that's it for today. I hope I see you next time. Goodbye. Hey, Doa. Hey, true crime fans, have you listened to Wine and Crime yet? We're a true crime comedy podcast hosted by three childhood friends who chug wine, chat true crime, and unleash our worst Minnesotan accents. Each week, us gals pick a true crime topic and pair it with a delicious wine before delving into the background and psychology behind the crime. Then we share and speculate wildly about a couple of bonkers cases related to the topic. Past episodes include necrophilia, cults, crimes of passion, cruise ship disappearances, exorcisms gone wrong, all this over a bottle of wine, or let's be real, three. Listen anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Wine and Crime Pod, and check out our website and blog at wineandcrimepodcast.com. Cheers! Cheers.